Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here. Very happy to be joined by my good friend, Michelle Kaufman, who has been just an awesome sports writer for a number of publications, but mostly the last 25 years for the Miami Herald. So you've been extremely busy, Michelle, as you told me just before we stopped, we started recording March Madness, maybe March mayhem for you, because in addition to covering the Miami Open, which I want to get into with you, uh, you were covering the University of Miami Hurricanes, which you've done for about 25 years. Unbelievable run for them to the Elite Eight. What's it been like for you covering this team all year? Yeah, this team really surprised me. I have to tell you the truth. Um, I didn't really, we didn't know, no one thought anything of this team because they finished last, they were very bad last year in the ACC. They were last place. Uh, they were predicted to be in 12th place this year in the ACC. They were just not in the conversation at all. And even me, I've, I've been covering this team since 1996. And, uh, you know, I didn't expect this from this team. I definitely did not expect to be sitting there in Chicago at the United Center at the Elite Eight watching that team go up against Kansas. I never, ever would have predicted it. Um, the thing is, with the transfer portal now in college basketball, I think this year was the most unpredictable year in college basketball because when people were making preseason prognostications, it was based on last year's team. And over 2,000 players switched teams last spring. So right. every team, the average team had three to four new players who were transfers. So that's one third of your team. In Miami's case, uh, three of the five starters did not play one minute last year. So the wow. team that we were predicting on was not the real team that showed up mm -hmm. because the point guard, Charlie Moore, we didn't know much about him. This was a guy who had been to four different, this was his fourth school. And I was just thinking, ah, you know, a guy who's been to four schools, there must be something wrong with him. Yeah, usually, um, usually that's not a good sign, right? Usually not a good sign. In this case, he basically left every time there was a coaching change. And also the, the move back, he, he started out at Cal. And then from Cal, he went to Kansas, which right. may explain why he played so poorly against Kansas, my opinion. Right. Then uh, he had his worst game of the year, by far. The guy has been absolutely phenomenal all season. Charlie Moore has just been magical the whole season. He's the reason everybody else was so good this year on that team. And he just froze in that game. He was turning the ball over. Uh, it, you know, anyway, we'll get into that later. So, so he went to Kansas. Then from Kansas, he went to DePaul um, because his father was, his father had had a stroke and he wanted to go back home and be near his dad. So he went to DePaul. Then DePaul fired their coach. So he ended up coming to Miami. Um, he was an amazing addition to this team. And then they also got a guy from George Mason, Jordan Miller, that no one really knew much about him. And he played at George Mason, you know, not a high profile guy, but he came in and became an immediate starter at forward, an incredible offensive rebounder, whatever. And then Sam Wardenberg, who's the big 6'10 guy from New Zealand, he was on the team. He's a 60 year senior, but he missed all of last season with a foot injury. He didn't play one minute the whole year. So those three guys who were really the critical guys on this team, plus Ken Mugusti and Isaiah Wong, who were the returning guys, um, that's a whole different team. So when they started playing, they started off poorly. They got creamed by Alabama early on in November. But then once the ACC season started, 
They won nine games in a row in the ACC. And, and, they, when, and they also beat Carolina and Duke at one point during the season. They beat right? Duke. They beat Duke at Duke, by the way. Right. They beat Duke at Cameron. My daughter is a senior there. She was mm-hmm. at that game. She said that place was stunned. And she grew up a Miami fan and she tried to tell people this team is pretty good. She was a little torn in that game. But um, they beat Duke at Duke and Duke was number two at the time. So Duke was ranked number two. Miami was unranked, went in there and beat Duke at Duke, then beats Carolina by 28 points. So two of your final four teams right now, Miami beat Duke at Duke beat Carolina by 28 points. So this team is not a fluke. They're not. They really are that good, and they really were that good. Um, And so at that point, I started thinking, wow, this team is – I think this team is going to be invited to the tournament, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. The crazy thing is they they were left unranked the entire season, which was ridiculous. Um, They were actually in first place in the ACC and in second place in the ACC for two weeks there. And they did not get they did not get ranked. They were not in the top 25. They were down in the others receiving votes, uh, but they never got in the top 25 the whole season. And then they get in the tournament and, you know, they beat USC and everyone's like, wow, you know, this team is that was, a, that was a close game. Right. They won that by two, I think. Right. Oh, and even in the ACC tournament yeah. first, they they almost they almost beat Duke again in the ACC tournament. And, yeah, they get through and then they get to the Sweet 16 and I'm thinking, okay, you know, they're in the Sweet 16. And uh, and then they Iowa win that State, game. Right? Huh? Iowa State. State right? They yeah. played Iowa State, which was kind of, you know, a good matchup, a 10-11. I, I thought that that is a game that they could have won. It was, it was a 10-11 matchup. They were actually favored for the first time in the tournament. And um, and then, you know, oh, and they beat Auburn. I mean, the big one to get into the oh, Sweet yeah, 16, the they beat yeah, Auburn, right. a number two and they, won, they won that pretty comfortably, right? They won that very comfortably. That yeah. game was not even really – Auburn was stunned. And the big thing was, oh, Auburn has Jabari Smith. Auburn has these big guys. Miami's undersized. But Miami played this great scramble defense where they – that's how they com- – they didn't have the size, but they played a really, really aggressive defense, forced a lot of turnovers. Um, in fact, that game they won at Duke, they forced Duke into 17 turnovers and they had 14 steals in that game. So that's kind of what their, their defense was predicated on turnovers and steals and all that. So anyway, they get to the sweet 16, you know, they beat Auburn, stun everybody. That's a number two seed. Now they've beaten, they beat a seven seed. They beat a two seed. Then they play Iowa state win that one. And then I'm thinking, okay, you know, why not? I mean, they've beaten right. all these other people. What the hell? Um, and the first half, they're leading. And, you know, I put on Twitter, like, I, I didn't ever think I'd be writing this sentence, this sentence, but it's halftime. And Miami is leading number one seed Kansas by six points, mm-hmm. which was the largest margin, by the way, that Kansas had been down by the whole tournament. I think they had been leading almost every minute of the tournament. And if they had been down, it had not been by six the entire tournament. So at that point, I'm starting to write my story. I'm starting to write and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm kind of thinking maybe they might win this and I'm writing sort of a positive look. And then the second half starts and oh my God, it was like, what happened? Um, they they opened the second half, I think with three turnovers in a row 
which they're very, they were actually ranked eighth in the country for protecting the basketball. So this is a team that did not turn the ball over all year. I, mean, I, think, I think I think Kansas ended up with one more turnover than Miami in this game. And uh, it was unbelievable just watching the athleticism of Kansas. I mean, I, I don't follow college hoops in, in any way the way you do, but I, I rewatched sort of the beginning of the second half and they were just flying all over the court. And it just looked like Miami just got shell-shocked couldn't keep up. And you look up at the scoreboard, there's 11 minutes to go and, you know, Kansas is up by 12 game over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, we talked to coach L after talked to the players, they were devastated. They were all crying. It was so sad. Um, But you know, what happened there is Kansas was probably ticked off at halftime that they're losing to Miami. I mean, let's face it. They're losing to a number 10 seed. That's never been ranked all season. They're Kansas. They're number one. They're supposed to be in the final four. Uh, so I'm sure they got an earful at halftime. They came out just flying and Miami made those three uncharacteristic mistakes in a row on the other end, Kansas took those turnovers and, you know, I think they had two dunks and a three, like right away. And, and that building, I can tell you that United center was 90% for Kansas. There was one little section of Miami fans in green and orange, everybody else was in blue and red and they were so loud and that place just erupted. It was, I actually covered my ears at one point. It was so loud, so piercing. And I just think that the Miami guys for the first time all season, I mean, it's an old team. It's that team's actually older than some NBA starting lineups. And that's not even a joke. That's true. Uh, they had three 60 year seniors on that team in the starting line. Yeah, because, because of COVID, a lot of these athletes are able to stay an extra couple of years, right? They stayed an extra year and they already had stayed another year. So they had guys, they had two 24 year olds, a 23 year old, a 22 and a 21. The youngest guy in the Miami starting lineup was 21 years old. And, and I do think that that helped them get to the point that they did because one and done, you know, those young guys who are freshmen, when they get to the biggest stage, they get nervous. They've never been there before. They've never been in that environment with all the bands and the cheerleaders and 20,000 people and the brackets and the national attention and 24 seven on ESPN and all that. Um, they're not used to it. Whereas these guys, you know, they're old, they're 23, 24 years old. Uh, they're much more stable. And so I think, you know, coach L took George Mason to the final four. In well, you, well, yeah. You got to mention him because, because you're the inside coach L coach. Laranaga, right? Yes, 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 Coach okay, Laranaga. Yeah, he's a coach of Miami, and he's a real character, right? I mean, he's got the team fired up, and he's well, a character. Like a of, he dances. Yeah. Huh? What's he like? What's he like off the court? Oh God, he's a trip. I mean, he's so much fun. You know, when they hired him, they hired him eleven years ago, and you know, he looks like an old guy from New York. You know, which he is. He's from the Bronx. And, you know, he looks like he looks like Larry David. Nothing nothing wrong with that, Michelle. No, I know. I know that he <laughs> looks like he looks like Larry David and Jim Beheim. I think they're all the same person, to be honest. Right. And Bernie Sanders. I'm going to throw him in, too. Okay. All right. If you That's put a good Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Jim Beheim, Jim Laranaga and um, and Larry David. Wait, Larry David, Jim Laranaga, Jim Beheim and Bernie Jim Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Okay. yeah That's a good. That's a nice basically. Pretty much the same guy. I'd like so to play anyway, golf with that. I'd like to play golf with that foursome. That'd be fun. I'd just that would be, be a great. That would be an awesome yeah. foursome. But uh, Jim Larnega is so full of energy. When they hired him, some people in Miami thought, eh, you know, they needed someone younger to relate to the players. You know, the players today are all, right. you know, young and they're getting younger and younger in college basketball. And Miami's hiring this older coach. 
But the guy is so much fun. He dances. He does these locker room dances that are hysterical. And the players, if you see, you know, go on Twitter and look up the videos. The guy is so funny. And the play, he he really makes the players play loose. He told them the minute they got into the tournament, the first thing he said to them is, we're going to have fun. I don't mm. want you to think like, oh, my God, it's the NCAA tournament. I have to make this basket. I have to make this free throw. Although they did do that in the Kansas game, I think. But um, but the rest of the tournament, they really played loose. They were laughing. They were joking. They were dancing before every game. During the warm-ups, I would always watch both teams. They were always the looser, louder team during warm-ups. They were goofing around and laughing and joking and dancing to the music. And they're really a lot of fun. And they're they're an extension of their coach, you know. Uh, coach Larnegas, he's um he's more of like a he's kind of like a fun college professor. He likes to consider wow. himself a professor of basketball as opposed to a coach. One of the things that I thought was interesting that he talked about was that. Um, he had a high school coach at Archbishop Malloy. He always talks about that was right. his, that was his mentor. And he always talks about him and his name is escaping me now, Curran or something. Anyway, this legendary coach was his coach up there. And he said that he never cursed. He never used a curse word ever. And mm-hmm. so coach Larnega has been coaching for over 40 years. He says that he has never used a curse word in 40 years. He has never cursed a player ever. He's never dressed down a player and screamed at him. He says, my job is, he said, I'm a professor. Your professors don't yell at you. Your professors don't yell obscenities at you. Your professors are there to teach you and to make you better. So he said that when when players make a mistake on the court, instead of yelling at them, he claps for them and calls them over and tells them how to do better the next time. And he said that what he learned from his uh, he has a psychologist, sports psychologist, Bob Rotella, who's very famous sports psychologist, and they're good buddies. And uh, the psychologist told him that as a coach, to yell at someone for a mistake they just made is a complete waste of time because that mm-hmm. can't be fixed. That mistake is already done, and you can't do anything about that mistake. What you can do is make them play better on the next play. Mm-hmm. Don't even think about the last play. Don't even respond to the last play in a negative way because that can't be fixed. What you can do is clap for them and then tell them what to do better on the next play. So that he has a very positive approach to coaching. Um, no negativity whatsoever. Never. You would never see him yell at a player. He, like he said, he's never used a curse word in 40 years. Um, he's just a, a positive Uh, You know, professor professorial is the word that everybody uses about him. He likes to sit and tell the guys not only he explains to them the tactics of the game. And a lot of the players who come here, they develop into better players. They transfer in. He gets a lot of transfers and his transfers turn out to be the best players. He brings players in that are already talented, but maybe didn't have great coaching. And he brings them in. And really teaches them the game. And he does the same with us, with reporters. He sits us down sometimes and will explain to us about the scramble defense. Here's what we're trying to do in the scramble defense. He explains it in layman's terms. Anyway, he takes that approach with his players, too. It's all about teaching, teaching, teaching. And then he also likes to teach them a lot of life lessons. So he tells them all kinds of anecdotes and fables and stories. And he's a great storyteller. You know, he's like a New York Bronx guy. He's a great storyteller. Very funny. Um, and so the, what this is a long way of saying that 
that guy that some people feared was too old to relate to young people, the young people are drawn to him because they learn from him. He supports them. He loves them. He kisses them. I don't know if you saw after the, the game, uh, after the game where they got into the final eight, he grabbed Cam McGusty by the head and he kissed him on the head, you know, on the on national TV during the interview. Right. He kisses his players. He hugs his players. Um, he's just a he's a phenomenal guy and he's a phenomenal coach. And, and what he did with this team, I voted for him, not because I'm a homer at all, but I voted for him for the ACC coach of the year. I just think that what he did with this group was incredible. Them getting to the final. This is before they got to the final eight. Um, just to reach the, toward the top of the ACC, considering where they came from, was pretty amazing. So it's been really fun covering that team. He's he's a lot of fun to cover. The players, like I said, they kind of mirror his personality. So he loosens them up and then they turn fun and they love to talk also. And um, it's really, it's been a wonderful, wonderful ride. And it, it was really sad to see them lose that way. The only positive is my schedule with trying right. to cover the tennis I was missing tennis. I also, by the way, I cover MLS. So I cover the Inter-Miami David Beckham's soccer team down here. So right. that's also going on right now. So not, I'm basically not, juggling. Not to, mention, not to mention you've covered 14 Olympics and six World Cups and so on and so forth. And you know what? There's a, there's a plethora of reasons why I needed to have you on my podcast. But now I know the big, I mean, I don't even need to do anything. You just keep talking. I love it. This is amazing. <laughs> by the way. I have to let the listeners understand that you've been teaching at University of Miami for, I believe it's 17 years now, a class yes. uh, on sports journalism and so on. So I can see that professorial side of you as well. Um, my listeners also need to know that you and I go way back. We used to share a limoncello in the Wimbledon Village with our good oh, friend, Liz Clark the, the Washington Post. Um, so I hope that we can do that again. I hope you can make it back to Wimbledon. It looks like I would love we, that. I miss yeah. that so much. I miss that so much. You know, I have a funny story. I'll throw in just a little anecdote. Liz and I, Liz Clark from the Washington Post and I, we always roomed together. We always rented a flat in Wimbledon. And one of the great things about living in Wimbledon for those weeks is you're really living in a tennis village. You really are. Right. And you're walking around and you would see tennis commentators, you would see the players walking around and then there you are right in the middle of all of it. There's nothing like it really as a, as a reporter. Um, and one day Liz and I were walking to the grounds, to the Wimbledon grounds, and we see a guy ahead of us with a big tennis bag, a racket bag, and it looked like Rafa Nadal just okay. walking through the town. And we thought, well, you know, that guy really looks like Rafa from the back, but he wouldn't just be walking through the town, carrying his own rackets. Woody, I mean, they, because right. we knew that they provide drivers for the players, even if they're staying three blocks away, there's a driver right. that would come get you. So anyway, we were so curious that we decided we had to like walk really fast and try to catch up to this man. And uh -huh. we walked really fast. We catch up to him and it was, it was him. Wow. He yeah. walked to the town. And so we asked somebody when we got, when we got into the grounds, we asked somebody about that. We said, you know, Rafa, is walking here by himself through the town carrying his bag. And they said, yes, that he declined the driver, right, that he was yeah. one of the only players who declined a driver. He said that he liked to walk through the town with the people. Amazing. And I don't know, to me, that just said so much about him. Like you know, you know, It reminds me of actually a similar thing one year when I was there for ESPN. Um, and it was the day of the women's final. So I'm sure you were on center court. 
And I had done my little preview and I wasn't calling the women's final. So when the match started after like a set or so, I was like, okay, I'm going to walk back up the hill. You walk up the hill right. to go back to my apartment, my flat, as they call it. And so I'm walking past, you know, there's that uh, coffee shop. There's a couple coffee places. Right. There. Yeah. Yeah. I'm walking past the coffee shop and I peek in and it's very quiet because, you know, most people are at the, at the match or watching on TV. Guess who's sitting not Rafael Nadal, but another guy like him, Roger, Roger. Federer. Really? And he, and he was in the men's final the next day. Wow. So he was literally sitting there just totally chill by himself, you know, in his nice little sweater. <laughs> and, I, and I saw him from the window. So I'm like, oh, my God. So I walk in. I said, what, what's up? He goes, he goes, don't tell anybody, you know, I should be watching the match. I said, yeah, don't tell anybody. That I should be watching the match, too. He goes, what's <laughs> score? You know? So, I mean, it was just, but you're right. That's one of the great things about Wimbledon. The players can sort of chill. Uh, but it says a lot about both those two characters. Okay, before we move to the Miami Open, because I know you got to get out there to cover it, so I want to honor your time. Who's, give me your pick to who wins the championship. Duke, Carolina, Villanova against Kansas. Those are the two semifinal matchups. Who do you like? Oh, God, this is this is tough. I mean, I will say having watched Kansas, I I can't imagine them losing. I mean, I know Villanova is really good. I haven't watched Villanova as much, and I obviously have not seen them in person. Having watched Kansas in person, knowing how good Miami is, although Miami did freeze, they really did not play like themselves that second half. But part of that, a large part of that was Kansas just coming right. out in complete domination. Um, I would think I would pick Kansas to win that half of the bracket. Okay. Um, on and the Bill, other hand, Villanova's lost one of their best players too, and they don't yes, have a deep bench. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I would pick Kansas on that half. The other half, you know, I have been fought. I have a very, you should, yeah, very you, should, you should be dialed in on this. I mean, you know, these two teams. Well. I am so dialed in. First of all, my daughter is a Cameron crazy. Okay. Right. My daughter slept in a tent for five weeks and I am not exaggerating in the last they game for the game? UNC game for the UNC right. game. That was coach K's last game at home at Cameron. Um, right. The players all, I mean, the, the, the students always camp out for the UNC game. That's an mm -hmm. annual tradition. It's been going on since the seventies. Um, it's a really big deal on campus to be a tenter, to live in Kville, to live in Krzyzewskiville. Right. And right. typically it's, you know, three weeks usually that they, they, it's a whole big thing. It's unbelievable what they do. Um, can I say real quick, do you have time or not? I got plenty of time. I got all the time in the world. I'm, okay, I'm trying right. to respect your time. So right. I'm loving let me, it. No, let me right. tell you this, because this is just so cool. And a lot of people don't know what goes on at Duke with these students. Okay. And my daughter is one of them. So I am, yeah. I know every detail about this, but I won't say every detail, but the way it works is if you're a Duke student, they are so into basketball there. It's a religion. I've really never seen anything like it. My daughter was an athlete. She was a soccer player for 14 years. So she's always loved sports. And one of the reasons you chose Duke is because of the whole craziness with the basketball. So, I mean, it's a fantastic academic institution, but they also love sports. And that's what love she wanted. Sport. She's like, yeah. I want to go to a great academic school, but they have to like sports there. It had to be like Stanford is another one where you went, you know, mm -hmm. she wanted to go to a fantastic school, but they have to like sports and the kids have to wear the school colors and all that. Otherwise, she wasn't interested. So she goes to Duke. She didn't tent the first three years because she thought it was a little crazy even for her. This okay. year, she told us right away, she's like, Mom, I'm a senior. 
I don't care if you approve or disapprove. I'm going to tent this year. So the way it works is uh, the first week of January, there's an exam, a one hour basketball trivia test with 100 questions. And yeah. Oh, they cram over the winter break. My daughter and all her friends were studying for the basketball trivia test. Okay. Because the way it works is, yeah, the way it it works is they come back from winter break and you get in groups of 10 to 12. That's your tent group. You get in groups of 10 to 12. There were 175 groups. Okay. 175 groups. So over 1,700 people, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That many people. And there's only 6,500 undergrads. So you're talking about a very large, a very large percentage of their population. They go to Cameron at 9.30 at night on the designated night, and they sit in groups all over Cameron, picture little groups of 10 and 12 all over that arena, and they give them the test. They have to turn in their phones. All cell phones have to be turned in. You can't have any electronics. And uh, so they have 175 groups of kids trying to get into 70 tents. There are 70 tents, 175 groups. 170, right, okay. So 105 are not going to get in. A little little less than half of them get in, basically. Right. So they take the test. It's 100 questions. You have one hour to do it. And then you submit it. The next morning, they post the results. The top 70 scores groups get get the privilege of living outside in a tent in the freezing cold in the winter. This year, because it was Coach K's last home game, they did it for five weeks. It started on January 20th and the game was March 5th. Okay. So anyway, my daughter calls all excited the next morning. Guess what? We finished in 48th. We finished 48th place. We get a 10. Yay. Hallelujah. I was actually hoping that they wouldn't, but anyway, she got in a 10. They set up their tent on January 20th, whatever it was. And they set up the tent. And then the way it works is a minimum of six people, have to be in the tent at all times, 24 hours a day. Minimum of six people. Okay. Yeah. So they got to people. Alternate. So they do shifts. They right. alternate, but still six of them have to be in there. And there are monitors. There are monitors that walk up and down. You, you always have to have a minimum of six. If you have fewer than six, your tent gets thrown out. Wow. So, yeah. So, anyway, so they have these giant Excel spreadsheets, which my daughter was part of all this. Uh-huh. And you sign up for your shifts when you're going to you go. Organize, so, organizing your time slots. You organize your time slots. So if you have class from nine to 12, then right. you come to your shift from 12 to three or whatever. And then so Sophie, for example, was doing uh, three night shifts a week. So three of the seven nights she slept, the shift was 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. And Ooh. during so she would go out there at one in the morning to her tent. Right and sleep over there and no heaters or anything. And it was in the twenties and thirties. If it gets to 25, they get grace and they get to leave. They get to go home if it's 25 or below okay. anything above 25, they have to sleep in the tent. So anyway, she was, she's from Miami, mind you, she's a Miami girl. Right. She was sleeping in four layers of clothing with a down coat, gloves, hat, and four pairs of socks. Um, and this is all to get into one Regular season One basketball game, game. Final game. This is this the is final game level. against North Carolina. Now, by being a tenter, by being a resident of Kayville, um, you do get to get into all the other games leading up to that. So you okay. automatically get into all the basketball games because every game at Duke, there's either overnight tenting or a long line of six to eight hours to get in. 
So, right. you know, so every game. So that's one of the, so one of the benefits is you get, you get in the, all the other games. That's you get in all the other games. So she went to every game. She was one of those crazy people that's going like this right. dressed in blue that you see on TV. We always would see her on TV. That was part of the mm-hmm. fun. Um, and then, so yeah, so they lived in this tent. They did shifts overnight. And when you're sleeping, get this, if you do the night shift every two hours, there's an alarm and they wake everyone up and you, they come around and you have to show your ID to make sure that it's the, you, you can't like have someone well, else to make sure that this is the right, right students. Yeah. It's the right students. So anyway, wow. if you who survive, who are, the, who, are the, who are the people that are monitoring that? Are they other students or they who are, are they? other students? There are other, other students. students. And my yeah. daughter said they're the ones, they are on major power trips because they, they were tenters in the previous year. And then they want to be monitors their senior year. They're called uh-huh. line monitors, line monitors. So there's you know certain lines in the tent city they right. they're monitoring up into anyway it's the most insane thing however my daughter said when it all ended and they finally get in the building for the big UNC game and this is why mind you now these kids have been sleeping in the cold in the tenting for five weeks to see Duke against Carolina and do you remember right. what happened in that game Carolina. Carolina, Carolina blew them out. I mean, Carolina, yeah, Carolina then, blew them out. Yeah. And then Coach Chase, sort of made his almost like an apology kind of speech on the court, which yes. some people didn't like, by the way, but that's another topic. Yes. Yes. But, you yeah. know, I think he just felt so horrible. There was so much hoopla about that game. There was so much buildup. My daughter said ESPN was on the campus for a whole week. Oh, that yeah. No, week, massive. I mean, that's that game's a big game in every year. Right. So you, you put you put the fact that it's, it's Shashevsky's last year, the last game at the at Duke. I mean, that's amazing. I never knew about that. That's wild. So, okay, so we get to the game. I mean, it sounds like Duke slight. Fa- I mean, they've been ranked higher throughout most of the year. Um, I'm gonna pick Duke. I'm gonna pick, pick Duke. Duke? I, I am, although you know, I'm torn because part of me says the team has too much pressure. Because they mm-hmm. they have to win for Coach K, and and that that right. showed late in the season. They had some stumbles, including that North Carolina game. I think that they, it was too much about Coach K, and I think they felt too much pressure to win for Coach K. And just knowing somewhere in their minds, if we lose this game, yeah. this is his last game of a forty-two year career. That's a big burden to put on young players. That team, unlike the Miami team, that team has guys starting that are eighteen years old. So it's a lot to put on Paolo Bancaro and those guys. However, I part of me thinks that, that they won't be able to handle and they're going to crack under pressure and North Carolina has nothing to lose. On the other hand, they are so... They're I so loaded. I mean, they've, they've got like four or five NBA players on their team. So they're loaded. On, they're loaded. They're motivated now. They're loaded. They're motivated because they do not want to lose to Carolina twice. That would be the ultimate embarrassment. And number three... They want to send Coach K off with a national title, you know, and and I think I don't know if it's that's going to crack them or that's going to motivate them. That's the question. They definitely have the most talent of all yeah, four of the it, teams. It, it, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like yeah, it sounds like the best matchup, at least, you know, and I'm just a casual fan, so I don't have any uh, real rooting interest would be Duke against Kansas, because it sounds yes. like from what you're saying and what I've read that Kansas got a lot of power. I mean, a lot of firepower, too. All right. So let's get into the tennis now. Oh, yes, tennis. Back. Right. Yeah, you came You came back. You've been covering the tournament for years. You and I go way back to keep us game together. It's now moved to the Hard Rock. I was there for the first year. A little shaky, I thought, with the stadium, but it looks like they've 
tidy that up. The outer courts look great. You come back and right away we're into Kyrgios, um, oh, Kyrgios world again yesterday against Sinner. So you wrote a great piece in the Miami Herald, which I, I just read this morning. So tell me a bit about sort of what the vibe was and what happened out there between Kyrgios, not so much Sinner, because we know Sinner is another great young talent, the young Italian, but Kyrgios, the chair umpire, so on and so forth. Give me your rundown. Yeah, it was, it was um, you know, I mean, he obviously, he has a history of temper tantrums and all that stuff. I mean, that's the the on-court histrionics and the meltdowns. And, and, and the thing is, Nick, at last week, right here at the press conference said, you know, I'm really at peace now. I, I'm, I can control myself now. I, I'm in a better place. I had a lot of negativity before. He even talked to Naomi Osaka. They've had, they've had conversations about mental health issues and how to deal with negativity and this and that. And he said that he was like a new man. This is a new Nick Curios. <laughs> yeah, the it was all that that was all working fine until he started losing. Then it becomes <laughs> a little different. Right. So then, you know, he started to get frustrated and muttering, a lot of muttering and muttering and muttering, but the muttering was pretty loud. Um, you know, you could hear a lot of what was being said, especially on the TV. You could hear when I went back and listened to some of the stuff. And um, you know, he first of all, he was like, he was complaining about the court on one of the changeovers. He said, you know, this court is so slow compared. It was his first time on the grandstand court. He had played right. only inside. This court is so slow compared to the uh, to the to the stadium court. And they should have told us what kind of tournament is this? Why don't they tell us? Why don't they I'm tell talking us? Talking to the other players. I mean, this is by the way, this is extremely common. This happens at every tournament in the world. And the yes. players say, "Oh, you know, center court's playing a little quicker. Oh, the outer courts are a little faster. Whatever it is." Okay, so go on. So he's bitching about that, you know, that the, 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 the tournament directors should have told him, you know, that the court plays differently. And this is totally different. He said, this is like the difference between clay and grass. This is it's a joke. He said, this right. is this is like the difference between clay and grass. It's a joke. So then he, so that he complained about. Then he complained when the walkie talkie, the umpire's walkie talkie went off and it was kind of near the microphone. So it was a little bit loud. So then right. he's like, this is a joke. This is ridiculous. This is the worst ref ever. This is, you know, they need to get him out of here. And he said any person could go in there and he do should a better be fired. Job. Right? Didn't he say he should, he be, should fired? be fired? He said he should right. be fired. He said, now, hold I on. Could well, let, me, let me stop you for a second, because you I like to talk to you, especially because you cover so many other sports. I mean, you know, your tennis. But like sometimes I feel like when I talk to another tennis insider, we lose sometimes, a, you know, the proper focus. Okay, so you cover, imagine covering a basketball game or a soccer game, and a player said something like that to the ref, to the umpire, to whomever. Please tell me what would happen in those those cases. Oh, well, in soccer, they'd get a red card and they'd be thrown out of the game. Immediately, like if you if you said you should be fired to the, you, you uh, in a World Cup game, I mean, yeah. the biggest game on the planet, immediate red card, right? Yeah, you would get a red card. I mean, the stuff that he said, the, the things that he was yelling about yesterday, if any soccer player did that in the face of a referee, they would get a red card and they'd be thrown out. And then in basketball, you know, you'd also you'd get a technically you'd be thrown out. You know, you, I mean, you'd get a T for sure. You'd get you know. a T and then if you kept going, you'd be thrown out of the game. Yes. Yeah. Right. You can't, no matter what you think of the umpire, you can't get into it with them, you know, and, and going back to Coach L for one moment, uh, he was asked something about in the game against Duke in the ACC semifinal, 
there were some calls that seemed to go Duke's way and not as many calls from Miami. And he was asked about that after the game, you know, and he said, you know what? Been coaching for 40, whatever years. I never complain about referees. You know why? Because, and he said, I, here's what I tell my players. I tell them the day that you play a perfect game, you mm. can complain about the referee, but right. you make mistakes in the game. And the referees make mistakes too. Everybody makes mistakes in sports and everybody's human. So he said, if you play a perfect game and you shoot hundred percent and you make, you know, every defensive player you're supposed to make, and you do everything perfect, I will give you permission to criticize a ref. Otherwise you have no business criticizing a ref. It's so, never going to happen. Right. Right. So anyway, yeah, I think that, you know, Nick, he was just completely I mean, he just wouldn't stop. It wasn't like just one little comment under his breath, whatever. It just went on and on and on. And whenever the umpire tried to explain himself, he would just cut him off. He would just cut him off and just kept going and going and going. And um, and it got really ugly. I mean, it got really ugly. And then the crowd. And then, and then, yeah. And then he got then he got a point penalty and then he got a game penalty. Right. Yes, he got a point round. penalty and then he got a game penalty for, you know, obliterating the racket and then, right. you know, the crowd, of course, you know how crowds are, especially in Miami. It's a little bit of a boisterous crowd. You know, there right. were some people in the crowd that were on his side that were like, yeah, you know. Yeah, and then they, they, like, start, they like to see that. Yeah. They like to see it and they start yelling at the ref to shut up and stuff like that. And it, it was a know, there's, 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 Look, there's a couple of things I got to get off my chest, Michelle. And you'll, you'll I think you'll appreciate this because as a tennis guy, as a former player, the, the couple of, and, and I, there's the things about curious that I like, I mean, I know him pretty well from labor cup. So I'm as a personality, I, I like a lot of things he does his passion, but clearly he goes way too far. And, in, and then there's a couple of things he said in the last couple of weeks that really irritate me. Okay. Number one, he calls out Andy Roddick who did this very funny video. I don't know it if you saw it. It was funny. Yes, you know, I did. About how to On throw, how to the, throw racket, the racket. Yeah. And how to hit the ball like high and all this. And then he comes out and says, how dare like ex players criticize uh, current players? Like then I'm like, what freaking planet are you on? This is all, <laughs> this is our job. Yeah. This is number one, this is what we do. It's a little bit like, and Andy Roddick used to say this too, which used to piss me off. He used to say, well, Michelle Kaufman, how can you criticize me? You never played tennis. Right. Which also the stupidest argument I've ever heard. Like a professional journalist whose job is to cover whatever sport they're covering. That's number one. Okay, Kiros didn't say that, but it reminded me of that. Right. Then he's then then he says the other tired argument in the middle of the match, which you're talking about, which is nobody paid to see you, right. Carlos Bernardes. You know, no effing kidding. Right. Okay. But the job they have a job to do, and they are part of the show, by the way, the chair umpires. And Kyrgios, is, you know, his ego is so big that he's like, everybody here is here to see me play. Okay, a lot of, true. A lot of people like to watch you play. You're a big draw. But guess what, Nick? I turned on the TV last night, okay? And I watched Alcaraz against Sitsipats. Yes. Two guys, phenomenal athletes, going yes. at it. Great sportsmanship unbelievable tennis. Alcaraz is, I've said this before, you may have heard me say it, Michelle, is the next great male player. Okay. Yeah. No, this no, I guy, know. He's the, he's the next Rafa. He's the next but whatever. But was in the crowd. I mean, the people were loving it. And Nick, I hate to tell you this. They're loving it a lot more than watching your bullshit on the court. Okay. Go play, do your thing. 
We like it. People like it. But people love to watch Alcaraz and Sitsipas, who we've had issues with him before in his bathroom breaks and so on. But these two guys just went at it toe to toe. And the crowd in Miami was absolutely loving. I haven't heard a crowd like that in in a you know fourth round, whatever quarterfinal match in a in a Masters event for a long, long time. Yeah, it was fourth round match, and it was uh, you know there were lines by the way to yep. get in because they had them on grandstand. They were not on center court. They had them on grandstand. There were lines. I'm I'm not even kidding. Hundreds of people who didn't even get in who were trying yeah, to get in. Questionable putting that match on grandstand, but that's another story. Yeah, they had them on grandstand and it was, I mean, it was an electric atmosphere out there. It was, you know, there was, it was, it was loud. It was exciting. And like I said, a lot of people were just kind of standing around the the court just to kind of feel the vibe close to it, feel the the energy because they couldn't even get in. There was not a seat. But but basically the message to Nick is, listen, you know, you're popular. We're in in some ways you're good for tennis. We get it, but you don't need to pull all this crap to get people to watch, okay? Because Alcaraz isn't doing any of that. Sitsipas isn't doing any of that at the moment. Okay, so let's move on. The the last topic I want to ask you about is um, you talked about some of the mental health issues. We're seeing that, obviously, it being spoken about with Naomi Osaka. Azarenka pulled out of her match in Miami, saying that she's been dealing with a lot of off-court stress. The war may be something to do with that. You know, she's from Belarus. Yeah, I was wondering if it was that. I don't know what it's about. I don't know. She she wouldn't say. But but I guess, again, putting on your journalistic cap, which I love to hear from you, comparing sort of how this is approached in tennis. Of course, it's an individual sport as to how things like this you feel are dealt with and probably easier for the basketball player that's not easier but different because they've got a team they've got a coach you know in tennis you're out there all on your own but when you see these kind of things have you seen them happen in tennis and actually affect the matches you know what happened to osaka in indian wells when she had tears in her eyes because somebody heckled her um now she's playing great in miami she's in the semifinals. but sort of you know give me your thoughts on sort of how what you think about this whole process the way it's playing out in tennis well, I think it's not only in tennis because it happened in gymnastics too with Simone yep. Biles. True. Um, you know, and it's it's a touchy subject, you know, because I'm 57 and um, I've just seen, you know, I don't know how to say it in a sensitive way, but I've watched sports. I've been covering sports for 35 years and all those athletes over those 35 years had pressure had incredible pressures, Um, you know, whether it was in individual sports or in team sports, but, you know, whether it be figure skaters, four minutes out on the ice alone, that is an incredibly difficult thing to do, to do four minutes. And if you fall down, you can't just fall down and be like, ah, screw it, I'm done. They have to get right back up and and compose themselves in a millisecond and go and keep jumping and keep and, spinning and finish, and finish the routine knowing they basically already lost. Yes. You, know I mean? you finish the routine. Sport. You finish right. it with dignity. You finish it with dignity, even though you completely screwed up and fell all over the place, you still have to continue with dignity and you stand up and you, you know, you finish, you finish the job, you finish the, you finish your performance, you know, um, I, I hate to sound like an old grumpy person, but um, 
I do think that in general, not just in sports, I will say, because I teach at the University of Miami, I have a daughter who's in college, so I see people her age a lot. And I think that maybe our generation of parents have not done a good enough job of, I mean, I think that we all have pressure. You know, I had a student write to me yesterday and I love her. She's great. But she wrote me and said, I can't. I'm so sorry, Professor. You know, I need an extra day for this assignment because I'm really I've been really busy and I'm stressed out and I'm really busy and I need another day. And, you know, I debated what to do. And I said, you know, okay. I said, I'm going to give you the extra day, but, you know, your your grade is going to go down. I'm going to give you the extra day. And I said, but I just want you to know that in the real world, being busy and being stressed is not an excuse. You still have to do your job. And I can tell you just from my perspective, I mean, I'm not a professional tennis player, but I've been juggling three beats and flying around the country and having deadline pressures. And I had massive headaches, honestly, two days ago, I had a massive headache and I was sitting there trying to write a story. And I was like, do I feel like doing this right now? You wouldn't be able to call your editor, who I know you were on the phone with before we did this interview saying, uh, I can't do the, I can't do the piece. I can't do it. I'm just not. You can't do that, right? So I, I, you know, I understand the stress that everyone's under. And and I really think as a nation, I mean, I'm not going to get into everything, but everybody's stressed out right now. I just think people have a lot of things on their minds. There's a lot of stuff starting with the COVID and politics and now the war going on. There's a lot of things on people's minds. Um, But I... And I understand that we do have to, I'm not, I don't mean to say we should not pay attention to mental health it, by any means. I am not saying that. I think mental health for my own sake, I even sometimes say to myself, I need to slow down. I got to take right. care of my brain and my emotions because I'm frazzled. I'm completely frazzled and I'm not doing anything well right now because I'm trying to do 8 million things. I need to focus. I need to be more positive. I need to whatever. Uh, but I do fear in sports and especially in women's sports that um, that women will be viewed as weaker, you know, and that, um, you know, you sometimes have to push through. And I think Naomi's doing a great job right now. I'm seeing her in Miami. She's playing with freedom. She's playing with happiness. She's smiling. And she said that she spoke to a therapist for the first time. And, and I really, I mean, again, I'm not in Naomi's head. I'm not her close friend. I don't know her at all, really. Um, But what I will say is that I think it's good that she went and spoke to somebody and to anyone else out there that is feeling so much pressure that they can't handle the job that they're supposed to do. I think the answer is try to get help and try to power through and try to do because that's what we all have to do um, rather than just quitting or walking away or turning your back on your responsibilities on your job. I think what she's done now going to to speak to a therapist, which she said was at the urging of her coach and her sister who were really concerned about her after Indian Wells. And she spoke to someone and she said that the the therapist gave her some really good tools and mechanisms to get through things so that what she said to us this week, and she's been great, by the way, in the the press conferences, she Uh has been fantastic this week. She's taking all the questions. She's been really introspective and interesting and funny and um, she's been just the way she was when she came on this. She came onto the scene 
we all were like, thank yeah, like God. A, like a breath of fresh a air. A breath of just, fresh air. Yeah. I said it, I wrote that phrase a million times with her. Right. Naomi Osaka, a breath of fresh air. Someone who just sat there and talked to us like a normal human being. And yes, yeah, so she has some of the same, you know, uh, some of the same issues that all of us have as human beings. And she's willing sure. to talk about them. Whereas other people maybe are not willing to talk about mental health issues. So I think all of that is good. I think um, that it's good that she brought it to the forefront. I think it's really good that she spoke to a therapist and is now playing great tennis this week and seems to be really yeah. having fun. You know, I, and, I, I must I must say that um, I'm really happy about that too. And I think you put it, um, you, you, you spoke about it very eloquently there. The one thing I must say I'm surprised about is why didn't she speak to a therapist a year ago after the whole thing at the French Open when she, you know, put it out there that she was having issues? So, um, you know, better late than never because I would have expected that she'd been doing this over the course of the last, you know, nine to twelve months. But I'm glad it happened. Um, it's great to see her because she's great for tennis, and I think she's hopefully she's sort of transitioning to this place in her life where she can learn like Andre Agassi learned like Serena Williams learned that this platform of being a great tennis player is actually a great platform to give them, you know, a voice to do other things to do, you know, obviously Serena's got a whole thing going with her, her business and Andre with his school and his charity. So, but they figured out, you know, half at some point and they're like, okay, I'm going to use tennis to help me to be the best I can be, and then to help do the other things that I want to do in life. Because clearly, Naomi, I think, has the possibility to do a lot of things off oh, the court. Oh, she's so well. smart. Oh, yeah, she is so smart. My students actually, I had them with me uh, the other day, and they got to go to her press conference. They all walked out of there like their jaws were all dropped. They said, She is so smart. That was one of the most interesting press conferences I've ever seen. I mean, they they just weren't used to sitting and talking to a tennis player and, you know, I told right. them, they asked me if all tennis players are like that. And they they went to more press conferences during the day. And they really were surprised by all of them. They said that that it, they were surprised, having only been to football and basketball press conferences mainly, how direct right. the questioning was. They were surprised how direct the questioning is to the athletes right after a match. They, they thought that reporters were, they were a little taken aback by it. And they were surprised that the athletes are so willing to talk to reporters so openly and, and, you know, more so than they do in other sports. And I told them, I thought that one reason is, and I don't know, maybe you can tell me if you think this is true. I think in tennis in any individual sport in which tennis is one, uh, when you're speaking, when you're speaking as a tennis player in a press conference, you're only representing yourself. So you're not representing a school, a club, a team, right. an organization. You don't have to worry about, What's the coach going to think if you say this? Or what are your teammates going to think if you say that? Which is, is the case in team sports. I think a lot of team athletes, they're afraid to say anything because their teammates might think this or their coach or the organization. I think in tennis, um, they, they're speaking for themselves. And, and going back to Nick Kyrgios, I mean, he was ripping the ATP yesterday. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying the athletes in tennis, I think, seem much more... Uh, individual, they're much more, um, what do I want to say? They Well, they're independent. I mean, they're basically they're independent. contractors. Yeah, so I, I think they're you're independent. right. I think they're more willing to just say what they think and not worry about who's, who's going to say what. I mean, it's 
that's their opinion and that's their feelings about yep. their match and their whatever issues they're asked about. So I think tennis players, for the most part, I will say in all my years of covering all the different sports, tennis players do tend to be extremely honest and forthcoming. They're not, they don't just speak in, in, you know, cliches for the most part, the way right. athletes in other sports do, I find. I mean, do you think that's I mean, true? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think for better or worse, you know, tennis players have to be, you know, extremely accountable because like you said, you're out there on your own. You know, it's one of the positives of being a tennis player. It's one of the challenges. You, know, you can't listen, blame I, the coach. You can't blame yeah, anyone. I mean, you know. Players try to blame the coach oftentimes, <laughs> but, you know, I tell this to parents all the time in our tennis academy, you know, you know, be ready for this because this is this is a challenge. You know, you, you know, if you're a, a great soccer player, basketball player, even if you're the best one on the team, you can always say, yeah, I had a great game, but the team lost or whatever. You can come up with rationalization. You know, in tennis, I mean, it pretty much is what it is. You know, you could say, oh, I got a hook. I got a bad call. Oh, it was windy. It was this. You know, you try to. But the reality is you won or you lost. And then and especially for kids, you know, that's not um, that's not always that easy. Well, listen, uh, I'm going to stop it here, Michelle, because I, I promised you we'd be like 25 minutes. I think we've gone double. I know, I know, but you know how I am. I do want to I want to stress one last thing, because I don't want anyone to think that I don't care about mental health. I do care about mental health. I don't think anybody's weak if they you know, I don't. That's not what I'm meaning to say. My point was that when we have mental breakdowns and emotional times that are difficult, which I have, which everybody has, um, I think we have to find ways to work through them. And I and I'm really happy that Naomi is is doing that. And I think that that's a great she can be a great role model for anybody that there's no weakness in saying I need help because she said the reason she said, I know I should have done this after the French open. She said it just what you just said. She She said, why did it take me this long? She said, why did it take me this long? And she said, she said, she volunteered. She said, the reason is because I always want to take care of everything myself. And I think that I can handle everything myself. And she finally decided that she couldn't, that she needed help. And so I think that's a really important message for all of us who think that, oh, I don't need to talk to a therapist. I don't need help. I can handle it. And then you break down and you have a tough time. So uh, so I do want to say that I think Naomi's messages have all been great. Um, I just want to make, I just, my point was that, you know, female athletes have had pressure for a long time. Martina, Chris Everett, okay. Steffi Graf go down the line and they push through it. You know, they push through it. And maybe times were different. Or maybe the mentality was different. Maybe parenting was different back then. I don't know. But I do I do think we have to be careful that our young generation can still handle pressure because life is full of pressure. And you can't just throw up your hands and say, sorry, I can't do my job because I feel free- I'm freaked out. Right. Um, sorry, that's not sorry, an excuse. I sorry, I can't get my paper in on time to Professor Kaufman. You can't have that. Come on. <laughs> Well, listen, Michelle, um, head on out to the tournament. I wish I could be there with you, but uh, I won't be making it down, but I will be checking back in with you. Keep up the great work. And uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me all your time today. This was tremendous. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't know who's going to listen for this long. I feel bad I talk too much, but oh well. A lot of people are going to listen because this is Patrick McEnroe holding court and we held court on tennis and basketball. And I love it. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. You got it. Take Great care. Michelle Kaufman, everyone. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.